In Black and White is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. Our subscribers get access to the full Herald Sun website, including companion articles and photographs to this podcast. If you like this podcast and want to support it, click on heraldsun.com.au forward slash I-B-A-W to go to the new In Black and White page and click on any article to begin. So they not only helped him escape, but they gave him a job, they gave him somewhere to stay and uh, helped disguise him. Waterston fired a second shot and hit Rudolfo and Rudolfo fell to the ground. One of the allegations was that Waterston had shot him because he knew too much about this situation of the stolen goods. I'm Jen Kelly and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters. Melbourne would not be the cosmopolitan city it is today without the mass migration of Italians from the late 1940s to the 60s, introducing to our city the joys of their espresso coffee, fabulous food and vibrant culture. Yet only a few years earlier, during World War II, more than 18,000 Italian soldiers who'd been captured in northern Africa and the Middle East were locked up in prisoner-of-war camps throughout Australia. Out in Roeville, less than 30 kilometres southeast of Melbourne's CBD, a military training camp was converted into an internment camp in 1944, and it became home to 2,600 Italian POWs over the next two years. The prisoners were allowed to work to help out with the labour shortage while so many Australian men were away fighting the war, and many formed close friendships with local families. One of those Italian POWs was Rodolfo Batoli, a young man from Florence with dark curly hair and a broad smile, who was welcomed into the home of the local Gieran family every Sunday with some of the other POWs to play music and sing and eat together. Over time, Rodolfo fell in love with their 20-year-old daughter, Nora Gieran. The couple dated, always with a chaperone, and exchanged a string of intimate love letters over many months using a secret communication system. But the love story took a tragic twist when Rodolfo was shot by the commander of the internment camp, allegedly while trying to escape. Now a new book by Melbourne author Darren Arnott called No Regard for the Truth investigates the mystery behind the shooting and the real reason Rodolfo was shot. During his research, Darren was lucky enough to find Nora, now in her mid-90s and living in Queensland, and she was able to shed light on those terrible events of 1946. Darren joins us on today's podcast to tell us Rodolfo Bertoli's story. Welcome to the podcast, Darren. Thanks, Jen. Great to be here. I'd love it if we could start with a brief history lesson. Can you explain why was it that thousands of Italian POWs were locked up in Victoria after World War II? Yeah, so many of those Italians were captured in northern Africa and with an arrangement with the uh, the British government, 18,000 prisoners were shipped to Australia to be um, kept as prisoners of war. And I guess, you know, most people will realise that Italy changed sides during World War II and was actually fighting with the Allies. So I guess that's why some people might find it strange that we actually had them in internment camps even after World War II. So despite um, Italy having changed sides during the war, the soldiers were still viewed with suspicion. 
and they were held in internment camps in Australia while they were waiting repatriation back to their home country. Now, there were a lot of internment camps throughout Australia, weren't there? But I was quite fascinated to learn that there was one at Roeville. I actually grew up out there in the Outer East, and I had no idea that there was an internment camp out there. Yeah, that, that, that's right. So it, it had been a camp for Australian soldiers in 1942. Shortly after that, it was a camp for US Marines, and there were about 3,000 US Marines that passed through there before being relocated to the Pacific. And then it became an internment camp for Italian prisoners of war in December 1944. And for people who live out there, exactly where is it in Roeville and what would they find there now? So it's on the southwestern corner of Wellington and Stud Roads. So if you're familiar with the area, you'll know, know all the power lines that are there. So what's there at the moment is the power lines. There's a large housing estate there. And there's also a small bush reserve called Starlight Reserve And within that reserve is the remains of one of the roads and the concrete foundations of some of the buildings are still there. It was actually classified as a hostel, wasn't it? And men were free to come and go, more or less, during the day. And most of them had jobs on the local farms as well. Can you explain more about that? Yeah, that's right. So there was a a work program that the Australian government had set up. In one part, it was to, to... occupy the Italian prisoners. And secondly, it was to make up for the labour shortage while uh, lots of soldiers were overseas fighting the war. So there was no barbed wire, was there, around the camp? No, not at all. So there was a, a, a single strand wire fence around the camp, which was pretty much just to mark the boundaries. Um, some of the people in the court cases joked that it, it was more to keep the cattle out rather than the, the prisoners in. So there was, yeah, there was just a wire fence, no barbed wire or anything like that. There were boundaries laid out for the prisoners, and that was quite a wide area. It was pretty much the creeks bordering Roval, so the Dandenong Creek, the Corramorable Creek. It was quite a few kilometres that they were allowed to go um, within Roval. What was life like at the hostel? Generally, it, it was it was good. The, the soldiers uh, worked either on local farms, they worked at the um, depot at Fishman's Bend, and at Watsonia as well. So they would um, start their day with getting up at seven o'clock, having breakfast. They'd go out to their work at nine o'clock, be loaded onto trucks, do their work, come back, have dinner. They had their own cooks, so they they could cook their own meal. So they had an Italian cook there? Yes, yes. So their own, the prisoners themselves would cook. There were also a number of prisoners who had stills set up in the camp, so they'd make grappa, so they could keep themselves occupied there as well. Yeah, and they they were... um, pretty much free to roam around Roval and, and befriended people within the community. And was there a curfew so that they had to be back at the hostel in the evening at a certain time? There was a 10 o'clock roll call. Well, they needed to be there for the, the um, dinner roll call, which was 6pm, and then they needed to be there at 10 o'clock for the head count and lights out. What were the relationships like between the Italian prisoners of war and people in the local community? Generally good. There's stories within the community of, of times they'd spent with the Italians. The Italians were viewed in, in a very positive light and as friendly, helpful. And did some of the local families form close relationships with some of the Italians? They did, yes. There was one family in particular um, that I got to know, the Giron family, who befriended quite a number of the Italians. It was not long after the camp had started, John Gear on, on his farm, which was just one mile down Wellington Road, was in the cow shed when two, two Italians wandered in and he um, welcomed them and took them to meet the family. In fact, later on, he, he said when he was asked about it, why were you so welcoming to these Italians? And he said that he had a, a son fighting in the Middle East and he hoped that if he was unfortunate enough to be captured, that 
the people who uh, court him would be as kind as he is to the Italians. And tell us more about the relationships that developed between some of that family and some of the Italians. Yeah, so um, the Giron family um, was a family of nine children, um, and mum and dad were John and Ada. Um, and the Italians used to spend every Sunday afternoon there on, on the farm. Um, the, the Girons were a musical family, so they would sing uh, on Sunday afternoons with the Italians, have musical afternoons. And Ada, who everyone would call mum, would cook dinner for them all on Sunday night. And then the Italians would make sure they were home by, well, back at the camp by 10 o'clock before the evening head count. And can you tell us about the relationship that developed between Nora Gieran, who was 20, and one of the Italians, Rodolfo Batoli? Yeah, Nora was 20. Rodolfo was a 26-year-old Italian from Florence. And um, Nora mentions that she remembers him being the tallest of the Italians that she'd met there, with dark curly hair and a beautiful smile. And they developed a relationship over time. Um, so they would, they would spend time together, but always chaperoned by one of her brothers or her sister, Carmel. And so was Rodolfo working there on the farm during the day? What is a labourer? Is that how he began to know Nora? Um, Rodolfo was in one of the maintenance platoons within the camp, so he would work within the camp and also off-site. Yes, as far as I know, Rodolfo's visits to the farm were just social visits. And how serious did this relationship become? Um, yeah, well, certainly based on the letters that Rodolfo wrote, very serious. Um, he, he had intended to marry Nora one day, and he had written to his parents saying that. Also, he told other prisoners within the camp and camp staff that he'd met a girl in the area whom he was hoping to one day marry. Rodolfo had actually hidden a, a bicycle in the banks of the Dandenong Creek and at times used to sneak out of the camp at night and ride his bike to visit Nora. And I understand that at some point Rodolfo left that camp and was living elsewhere and they had to develop a secret communication system to share letters between themselves. Yes, that's right. So Rodolfo um, spent some time at Kuirup, um towards Gippsland and also at the Balcom camp. And he, he wrote to Nora many, many times. There were strict rules about what prisoners had to do to, to write a letter. They were meant to use uh, official camp stationery and send it through the camp channels. But what Rodolfo and his friends had devised was they'd find a trusted person within the community. Um, they'd write their letter to Nora and put it inside an envelope and put it inside a second envelope and send it to the trusted person within the community and they would send it on to Nora and they would use that as a means of communication. And was this so that the letters wouldn't be read by the camp staff? That's right, yes. Yeah, so they wouldn't be read and intercepted. Yeah. And, and what was he saying in the letters to Nora? Um, how much he missed her, that he loved her, that life was tough and unbearable without her. Now, you've been lucky enough to get hold of some of these love letters, haven't you? Can you tell us how that happened? How did you come across Nora in your research? And perhaps you could share one of the letters with us. Sure. So I, I had actually just finished writing the book and, and had submitted it to the editor when I was able to meet one of the members of the Giron family. And I was chatting with her about the love letters and the, the relationship with Rodolfo. And um, she told me that the lady in the family, or the young girl, her name was Nora, um, and that's her auntie. And she was able to put me in touch with Nora's daughter and I was able to then arrange to meet Nora, who lives in Queensland. So I travelled to Queensland and met Nora and her younger sister, Carmel, and found that they had kept all of the letters that Rodolfo had kept from that time, as well as photographs with him. Um, this is just a short letter written from Rodolfo to Nora, 
read by an Italian-Australian, Mirko Gozzo. Pardon me, Nora, if I were not to offer to tell you how I love you. Believe me, I wish I were together with you to tell you what you are for me, and if I couldn't with my words, I should make you understand with my kisses. I'm going to close this letter. I don't want to say to you goodbye. I'm still hoping I'll see you again, so I say to you good night and thinking of you. I kiss you, Rodolfo. And did Nora, could Nora read Italian or did she need someone to translate the letters? No, the ones, so Rodolfo wrote, Rodolfo spoke English very well and he also wrote letters in English and Italian, but whenever Nora received letters in Italian, she had a friend in Melbourne who she'd go and see and this lady would read the letters to her. And the letter obviously shows how close their relationship was. Yes, yes, that's right, yeah. Um, Certainly, Rodolfo was completely besotted with Nora. Now, the backdrop for this love affair was that at the camp, there were allegations of serious mistreatment of prisoners. Can you explain more about that? So, some of the prisoners had started telling the Giron family about the the camp commandant, Captain Waterston. There, There were accusations of him often being drunk, being very brutal beating prisoners and being very, very reckless with his his firearms. He would often fire his pistol into the air or or a pistol at the feet of prisoners um, when he wasn't happy about something. Now, there's a a letter about these allegations to the Immigration Minister, Arthur Caldwell. I'd love it if you could read that for us. Yes, that's right. So um, this was a letter from Lena Santos Barito of Carlton, and she was very well known in the Italian community as, as a charity, charity worker and a campaigner for Italian rights and um, helped many Italian immigrants um, navigate their way through finding a home in Australia. So she wrote a letter to Arthur Colwell on the 1st of March 19. 19- My name is Manny Karoudis, and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. 46. And it reads, Dear Mr. Colwell, I would like to bring under your notice the following facts which have come to my ears. I know that these goings-on are not in accordance with the policy of this country and will certainly rouse your indignation. At the POW camp in Springvale, there is a certain Captain Waterston who is a veritable Nero. He is always drunk and treats the POWs shockingly. They are not free to have their possessions of their own, all articles of any value being taken out of their cases such as shirts. He makes a clean sweep of anything they manage to purchase out of their small earnings, even to cigarette papers, razor blades, shirts, shoes. Apparently he gets intoxicated every day. Then he goes around brandishing a revolver in mid-air. The prisoners are belted and given bread and water once a day, and their money taken away from them whenever they attempt to escape because they cannot tolerate the conditions any longer. A few months ago, one man was taken to hospital to have seven stitches in his forehead. Several have gone out of their minds and have been taken to receiving homes. I was told that also that this captain is a protected person, that is someone with influence. Uh, 
As this has been going on for some time, I would be happy if some move were to be made to end this state of affairs at the earliest possible moment, as it has caused a terrible lot of discontent. Thank you. I am El Santos Burrito. Now, was there any action as a result of that letter? There was. So Arthur Colwell forwarded the letter to the Minister for Army, um, who actually started, appointed an inquiry as a result of this letter, using the, the letter as terms of reference for the inquiry. So a major archer was assigned to investigate these allegations. Um, it's also worth noting that Lena Santa Spirito uh, was a personal friend of Arthur Corwell, and uh, that may have had something to do with the, the letter being escalated so quickly. The letter mentions some escape attempts, but by this stage, many prisoners had successfully escaped, hadn't they? Including some with the help of local families. They had, um, <clears throat> and yeah, I mean, a, a escape is a is a bit of a strange word to use since it was, you know, you could just walk out of there. There was there was nothing to keep them in. But yes, there was there's one notable escape or departure, and that was Frank Ponzoni, and he'd met an Australian girl, June Peterson. They'd met at nearby Heaney Park Lake and begun a relationship together. And June's family devised a plan to help Frank escape from the camp. So they waited for him in their car on Stud Road one evening and he snuck out and they took him away in the car. And so they not only helped him escape, but they gave him a job, they gave him somewhere to stay and uh, helped disguise him. So when one of these prisoners escaped, what did the authorities do? Did they actively try to track them down and return them to the camp? They did. It was... It was just reported to the police, pretty much. Apart from the night of the shooting later on, um, there were no active attempts that I'm aware of to search and hunt for prisoners. So what happened to Frank? Frank had worked with the family for a year as a painter and decorator, um, but he was recaptured 12 months later. And Frank and June actually married in September 1947, which was, according to the Truth newspaper, very, very controversial. And he was able to continue the rest of his life in Australia? They actually moved back to Italy for a while, but they found life there very hard and then moved back to Australia where they did yes, continue the rest of their lives together. So now this background all leads us to the terrible events of March 30, 1946. Can you tell us what happened? Yes, yeah, so it was um, just around dinner time and the prisoners were, were having their evening meal in two shifts just because there were so many prisoners. And it was Rodolfo Batoli was having meal in the first shift He'd just finished his meal and then was walking down to the toilet towards the southern boundary of the camp with the camp leader, Michelle Schumer. And they um, got to the toilet, parted company. The camp leader, Schumer, heard a shot, came out and found that Rodolfo had been shot. And he just saw, at that point, Captain Waterston walking away from Rodolfo as Rodolfo was lying on the ground. And what happened to him after that? Prisoners came around and helped him and, and carried him to the infirmary. Uh, where he was given first aid, an ambulance was called for when the doctor, Dr. Garley, who was the Italian camp doctor, realised his situation was, was so grave, he called for a camp car and they rushed him to Berg Hospital. And unfortunately, he died there later that night despite receiving treatment. So what was the official story of why Waterston had shot him? Waterston claims that he believed that evening there was going to be an escape. So he had told um, the staff at the camp, so there were 12 staff at the camp that evening and about 200 prisoners. For some reason, he believed there was going to be an escape, so he posted guards at a few different points around the camp and he took his second in charge, um, Sergeant McDougall, and they decided to patrol the southern boundary of the camp. 
So Captain Waterston claims that while he was patrolling the southern boundary of the camp, he saw Rodolfo near the boundary road, looking around, looking suspicious. Um, He thinks he may have had something under his tunic that he was hiding. He then made a run. Captain Waterston said he called out a warning to stop. He said he fired a warning shot. He still didn't stop. In fact, he changed direction. And Waterston fired a second shot and hit Rodolfo. And Rodolfo fell to the ground. And there were allegations, weren't there, that Waterston had said that he wanted to kill an Italian prisoner? That's right. Just two weeks before this, he was on patrol one night with at least two other um, camp staff. And he had said to them, I want to see a dead eye tie tonight. And uh, one of them is quite chilling because one of them says he had a smile on his face when, I, when he said it. And he took it to be a, a serious threat. And was there any, did you come to any understanding about why he was threatening to kill a prisoner? Was it because he wanted to to fire a warning shot to stop this spate of escapes? There was nothing specific, certainly speculation that he was maybe wanting to throw his authority around or or to make a point. But again, this was was after the war and an act like that without proper grounds could be viewed as homicide. Now, you've mentioned what the official story was, according to Waterston. What were some of the, the stories that were circulating about why he really shot Rodolfo? So um, one of the rumours going around was that Captain Waterston was confiscating the belongings of prisoners when they returned from farms. So often when they'd been working on farms, because they befriended the, the farmers and the families, they were given gifts. Um, sometimes it was food, sometimes it was clothing, and sometimes it was other things like, you know, clocks or combs or brushes or things like that. And um, one of the rumours was that he was confiscating those belongings and they were turning up at a a shop across the road run by the Finn family. And some of those belongings were even turning up at the the Queen Vic market. Also, um, sometime just before the shooting, one of the huts had been dismantled and there were around 110 sheets of corrugated iron from this hut that had gone missing. And mysteriously had turned up on the farm across the road. So one of the allegations was that Rudolfo knew about this and had been spreading rumours about it and that Waterston had shot him because he knew too much about this situation of the stolen goods. So there were quite a number of inquiries and investigations as a result of this shooting and and you've had the opportunity to, to look through all the documentation. What have you concluded? Why do you think Waterston shot him? Um, that, that's one that's um, had me pondering for a long time. And it, it's something I don't think we'll ever know. There, there's lots you can speculate about. Um, there were allegations that he was drunk that night. And there's certainly plenty of evidence to indicate that he was a heavy drinker and quite often heavily intoxicated. It may have been that it was just one reckless shot too many and that he was drunk at the time. I mean, he was just trying to assert his authority. So did the witness accounts agree with what Waterston said? Not at all. So Waterston had said that he'd given a verbal warning. Um, He'd also said that he'd fired a warning shot. Um, There were uh, numerous prisoners nearby and no one heard a verbal warning and everyone only heard one shot. Um, The only other person who corroborated Waterston's statement was his second in charge, Sergeant McDougall. But there were a number of prisoners who saw Rodolfo as he was walking down. Um, He was walking down with the camp leader. 
and they parted company for about a minute when Rodolfo was shot. So all of the other accounts say Rodolfo was just calmly walking down. He'd walked across the road and he was suddenly shot. And Rodolfo was still conscious after he'd been shot. The camp leader, Skuma, asked him what had happened and he said, I, I don't know, I was just walking and I found myself shot. I don't know who shot me or why. Which strongly suggests that there was no verbal warning given. No, that's right. It just suddenly happened. Was was Waterston ever punished in any way or, or put on trial as, as a result of this shooting? Yeah, so a, a few things happened. The, the first one was as a result of that initial letter from Lena Santos Burrito. There was an initial inquiry um, run by Major Archer that commenced on the 26th of March, just before the shooting, but he didn't actually do anything until after the shooting. He started his investigation on um, the 1st of April. And it was also during the week there was a military court of inquiry into the shooting itself, so the circumstances of the shooting. The military cleared Captain Waterston of any responsibility. They, they decided that he was acting um, in his duty and that he'd done the right thing and that Rodolfo had put himself in that situation by ignoring orders and attempting to escape. And so Waterston did eventually face charges, but not over the shooting itself? No, that's right. So uh, there was also a um, coroner's inquest that was unable to conclude whether anyone was at fault in the shooting or whether Captain Waterston was justified in the shooting or not. And then there was a, another formal government inquiry into the complete administration of the camp and the shooting. Um, again, the findings about Captain Waterston and the shooting were inconclusive. Um, he wasn't specifically found at fault of that. Nine charges were laid against Captain Waterston. So he faced a court-martial hearing for those nine charges. His superior officer, Captain Thompson, also faced two charges. Um, Captain Thompson was found not guilty of both charges Captain Waterston was only found guilty of one of his charges, and that was a charge of common assault against one of the prisoners. And for that, he received a reprimand, and that was the extent of his punishment. So returning to Nora, when and how did Nora find out the news that Rodolfo had been killed? Yeah, so Nora didn't find out until the Monday morning after the shooting. Um, She met her sister Margaret on the train station who had read the news about Rodolfo's death in the paper, and she said to Nora, Rudolph's been killed. And um, Nora, shocked and devastated, um, didn't go to work today. that day. She went home. And, and after that devastating news, Nora's family and the Bartoli family actually stayed in touch for a while, didn't they? They did, yeah. So Nora wrote to the Bartoli family. In fact, the, the Gerons sent gifts, so food and, and um, material to the Bartoli family. And the Bartoli family wrote back to them a number of times and thanking them for, for their kindness, but also um, talking about their, their shock and sadness uh, about the death of Rodolfo um, and also asking for more information if, if they could find out what had happened and asking Nora if she could send a photograph of Rodolfo's grave. And what happened to Nora? So she obviously had to put this behind her and she's then gone on and married someone else and started a family. Yeah, that's right. So Nora later married Charles O'Ryan and she had six children. Now, I assume this would have been a huge deal in the press at the time. And there's one story in particular that was in The Truth, a very sensational account of what had happened out at Roeville that I'd love you to tell us more about and perhaps read a little bit. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, just an absolutely outrageous article titled Breakout by 5,000 Planned Italian POW Mutiny That Fizzed Out. 
Behind the planned mutiny at the Roval POW camp last weekend, which resulted in the fatal shooting of one Italian, was a scheme by which Italian prisoners of war at each of the three main camps, Murchison, Hume and Roval, would break free and scatter under a well-organised plan, which provided for specially placed cars picking up escapees most desired by Australia's underground fascist movement. Those not picked up by cars were to be secreted by Italian communities and either hidden or passed on until they were out of danger. But the plan misfired. The Roval mutiny was premature. By the time Roval Meagher's guard was reinforced by civilian and military police, other POW camps harbouring Italians had been advised they too were on the alert. The scheme collapsed and it involved 5,000 Italians. So from your investigations, there's no suggestions that any of that is true? No, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> so what happened at the Roville camp after this incident? By December 1946, January 1947, most of the Italians had been returned home as ships became available. The camp yeah, then, then closed down and um, was dismantled. It's great that you've been able to speak to Nora recently, and I understand that she's now a widow. She's kept the letters for all of these years. I'd love to know what she now thinks about those events of 1946. Yeah, look, I think I think Nora, like many people um, who endured that wartime period, um, just got on with life and, and put it behind them. Um, a lot of these stories and events haven't been revisited until recently. So certainly my discussions with her and her sister Carmel were around some very, very fond memories of times with the Italians and and, uh, special times they'll remember forever. So Darren, how did you first come across this story? I grew up in the area, so I'd always known that there'd been a camp in the area. Um, And it was a number of years ago, I stumbled across the park with these foundations in there and I thought, "I'd, I'd like to know a bit more about it. So looked up the National Archives website and the first article that I came across related to the Roval POW camp was Justice Simpson's inquiry into the shooting of Rodolfo Batoli. And I realised that I could go and view these documents. So I, I went and viewed them and, and found these boxes of transcripts from the court cases and maps and diaries and all sorts of fascinating things and um, there was no turning back. And do you think it's surprising that this story has pretty much vanished into history and most people just don't know anything about it? It is surprising, but I'm glad I found it. And just to summarise, having lived and breathed this story for so many months now, what are your final thoughts about this story and about Rodolfo Batoli and what happened to him and what could have been? I am so pleased that I've been able to find out more about Rodolfo and tell his story. You know, this this young 26-year-old man who was just minding his own business and was suddenly shot, you have to wonder what might have been. Had he lived on, would he have stayed and married Nora? Um, Would he have lived in Australia? There are stories of a number of Italian prisoners, and I I mentioned one in the book, Phil Fiala, who had met a local farmer in Roval, and he was sponsored to come back to Australia. And he he came back and and spent the rest of his life here and uh, had a family here. And, and you have to wonder whether Rodolfo may have been able to do the, the same thing one day, come back to Australia and marry and, and be integrated into society and enjoy life as an Australian and, and add to the wonderful contribution that Italians have made to our society. If you want to read more about Rodolfo Batoli, you'll find a link to a story and photos in the show notes to this podcast. 
Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters. Written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly. Produced by Al Tynan and edited by Andrea Thies-Evanson. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you want to support this podcast and be notified when each episode comes out, make sure you hit the subscribe button. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.